Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today on the podcast, our guest is Congresswoman Katie Porter. The first term House member from Irvine, California, has become a rising star among Democrats, mostly for her blistering interrogations in the Hill that have become must-see viral videos. You see the one the other day where she convinced the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to guarantee free coronavirus tests for all Americans? Those tests would have cost more than $1,300 for people who don't have insurance. And Porter is an expert on oversight. We'll talk to her about that. Because that's what we need a lot of right now with more than $2 trillion of our tax money flying out the door to fight coronavirus. She's particularly concerned about that $500 billion in bailout money controlled by Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin with very little oversight. And we've got an It's All Political First here today as Porter conducted her part of the interview while sitting in her minivan outside her home in Orange County. And now, here's my conversation with Katie Porter. Congresswoman Katie Porter, welcome to It's All Political. You from your home in Irvine to me in my home in Oakland. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm getting tired of my children, but I think that's to be expected at this point. I think they're tired of me. Um, but it's it's. I booted my daughter out of the kitchen um, desk that she had and gave her a card table up in her room so that I could have a, a desk from which to continue working for my constituents. I, I, I want to, that's the, the first thing I wanted to make clear is that I, unlike many members of Congress, with all due respect to your, to your fellow members of Congress, your life is closer to that of, uh, of many Americans right now. Oh, you're a single mom of so three, you're trying to balance life. Yeah. Yeah. With taking care of them, your online school, you're trying to oversee. And plus you had your own coronavirus scare a couple of weeks ago. You tested negative, but you're okay. So how, how is it, how are you balancing all that? gives me a lot of appreciation. My situation gives me, I think, enough of an appreciation for the fact that not everybody is in the same situation. So, you know, my situation is obviously much better than most people. I have income security. Um, my kids are old enough that they're they're not toddlers or babies. So they have some understanding of, of what's going on and how to cooperate. And I'm using this time to teach them to develop even more self-reliance skills than they had to have with a mom in Congress. So they've been doing a lot of cooking and a lot of cleaning. Um, but I think, you know, I do think about kind of what the realities are. And so I'll give you one good example is I've heard some of my colleagues say that they're homeschooling. And I, I never say that because I think it discounts all the incredible efforts that I see from my kids' teachers every day to even make it possible for me to assist my kids with the learning. So there's no way I could come up. I'm not homeschooling. I am helping my kids distance learn. Um, and so I, I try to be really cognizant of all the ways in which different people are struggling in this situation. I'm certainly not in everyone's shoes, but I think my situation is different enough that I, I try to be really aware of the variety of situations families are facing right now. Right, right. You're 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 closer, definitely, in the spectrum uh, to that. Um, all right, let's talk about uh, oversight because that is uh, something you are an expert in. Uh, you are on the House Oversight Committee, and you have a long history of oversight. We're going to get into in a couple minutes, but uh, I think uh, probably like you and and, and me, I, I I'm very worried about that two trillion in, in federal taxpayer money that went out the door to people to help people. And particularly that five hundred billion that the Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin can dish out with with very little oversight. What are your biggest concerns about oversight there, and 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 what can you do about it? My biggest concern is that oversight simply won't happen. 
And the reason I say that is because to me, oversight is an active, real-time activity. It's not about looking back and saying, gee, three years ago, we did this and it didn't work. Oversight to me has an active, engaged um, aspect to it. And so, you know, we think about the roles of inspector generals, and I have a lot of respect for the work that inspector generals do, but they're almost always looking backwards. They're saying, oops, here's what we discovered in terms of fraud or waste. They're looking back to almost like forensic accountants trying to unravel where things went wrong. Um, good oversight is like good corporate governance. It's like good legislative activity. It's in real time and it's in conversation with community and with partners. And so my biggest concern is particularly with the president saying that he disregards the inspector generals and their situation it makes that Congressional Oversight Commission all the more important. And we've seen uh, Chuck Schumer uh, nominate his person, but we haven't seen Speaker Pelosi, Minority Leader McCarthy. We have one member of a five-member commission, and he's operating alone with no staff as billions and billions are going out the door in Treasury lending facilities. So wait, one member for, of Congress is on that committee with no staff. Well, how are they supposed to? Uh... No, actually, it's it's different. It's So there's five members to be put on the commission. This is what we fought for in the CARES Act. So Democrats fought to get active oversight of Treasury. And and it's, it's not that I think there's necessarily um, any, you know, ill intent behind trying to help businesses. I mean, even big corporations, they're also big corporations are big employers. So many of these industries may well need help right now to keep people on payroll. So Congress created a five-member commission. Each of the four leadership, Senate, Majority, Minority, House, Minority, mm-hmm. Majority, plus one person agreed to by Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell. You can only imagine what that Venn diagram looks like and how little overlap there might be. <laughs> that, that person yeah. that they agree on, by the way, is supposed to be the chair of this commission. But here's the thing. We passed the CARES Act three now weeks ago. Where is the commission? There's one member who's been appointed, and that's it. And he has no staff. And Mm. the commission is supposed to issue by law its first report within 30 days of the Treasury setting up these lending facilities. So the clock is ticking. And as I always told my law students when I was a professor in the classroom, you know, just because it says you have to do it, the deadline is 30 days after, doesn't mean you can't turn the work in early. So ideally, we would be having this commission right now doing oversight of what's going on with the aviation industry, of what's going on with this uh, Main Street, of what the role of these Wall Street investment bankers are in advising the Treasury, and why are we paying thousands of dollars, um, millions of dollars potentially in fees to Wall Street investment bankers when Treasury has their own staff that can and should be doing this work. There's lots of questions, and I have lots of questions, and I have no answers. What and and just to also back up about the, your history of oversight it, it, during times of financial crisis, you're you're an expert on this. 2012, uh, then Attorney General Kamala Harris asked you to be on the to ask you to be the California monitor for the National Mortgage Settlement. That's at that time. Remember the for our listeners, the five biggest Wall Street banks had promised billions of dollars in relief to homeowners. They came up very small. You and and the, the then Attorney General helped get eighteen billion from them when they were obviously promising a little bit of that. Would it would are we repeating some of those same mistakes now? Are you and and what are you seeing now? 
We are repeating some of those same mistakes, although I do also see some learning. And I'll I'll give you an example of, of both. The mistake we're making is that I think we're overestimating as elected leaders kind of the level of trust that the public has in government in times like this. And so it's not enough for us to just say, you know, we're, we're proud of our bill or this, you know, we're helping. We really need to show that that is a reality in people's daily lives. And that means being willing to criticize our own bills, to say where we came up short, to show that we're willing to improve. Um, and the, the one thing I do think there is some learning with regard to is trying not to create programs that are so complex that they take years to actually get going. So we're seeing this right now with the um, with the stimulus payments, the economic impact payments. The idea is just send it, just make a deposit. Like no application, no trying to wade through who's um, who's there and who's not there, who's eligible. You really can bleed to death from a thousand paper cuts. And that you're talking is about the a, the, the, the sixteen seven hundred dollars directly to people. Is the the twelve hundred dollar payments, right? And so, okay. but even right. with the small business programs, and there are lots of problems with those small business programs. And I spend a lot of my day talking to small businesses in my community, trying to help them with their questions and concerns. But even with the small business programs. We tried in Congress to reduce the number of hurdles and eligibility factors and tried to make things be as streamlined as we could. The result has been oversubscription of the programs, obviously, and a need for us to add additional money to it. Well, what, okay, so you, what did you, you, saw, so you saw some of the things repeated, and what are some things that were not repeated? Before go into the small business, I definitely Yeah, I think the not repeated is. With HAMP and HARP and the loan modification programs, there were so many criterion and so much paperwork. And I spent a lot of my time telling people, you don't qualify. So what I see with these programs is more of an effort to um, open the door a little wider and get everybody qualified and invited to participate. And I think that is a, is a good thing. I think there's more of an effort to recognize that everybody needs help um, rather than screen people so aggressively that, in fact, no one gets help. Okay. Now, let's talk about small businesses, as you alluded to. Is uh, On the day we're recording this, the, the Small Business Rescue Fund has virtually exhausted the $350 billion that it was initially set aside for that. And there's conversations now about putting another $250 billion into it. Uh, Republicans want it to go directly to small businesses, as the, as the first uh, batch did. Uh, and, and small businesses, is, just for our listeners, is, is businesses with fewer than 500 employees. Uh, but Democrats want that to go to more minority-owned businesses and local governments. Where are you on this? And, and are you concerned that while Congress kind of dickers over this. The small businesses, you know, you know better than anybody. They only have what a month's worth of, uh, um, you know, usually reserves before they before they go under. Congress understands that we need to put more money into this program, and the administration understands it too. To be clear, the amount of money we put in and the the terms and conditions of these small business programs were unlike anything Congress has ever done in terms of opening up small business lending to nonprofits of certain types, um, making making these $10,000 economic injury grants available, the combination of both the Paycheck Protection Program, which is the program that has, um, we believe, come close now or is about to exhaust its funding. Um, We understand how important these programs are. And we're not bickering 
we're fighting to make sure that the programs actually are available to everyone who needs them. Because one of the things we saw is the nation's largest banks announcing, we're only going to do this lending for our existing customers. That is people who already mm -hmm. have a loan with us, who already have a deposit account with us. Well, that leaves out a lot of our smallest businesses, um, a lot of our businesses who maybe don't have um, an established banking relationship. Maybe they don't already have an SBA loan. They're not familiar with the SBA. There are language barriers. So what we're trying to do is we all agree on the need to help small businesses and provide more resources for them. The question is trying to make sure that we, we're, when we say that, we're really doing it. We're making sure that absolutely every kind of business has an equal opportunity to get help. And we're not just helping the largest businesses. So in my own district, I'll tell you, I, I call small business owners virtually every day. They call us. Um, my staff and I all take turns calling people back. Um, and so, you know, I've talked to some business owners who have got loans, but they've made clear that, oh, I used to work in commercial lending, so I was really familiar with this process. Whereas when I talk to solo entrepreneurs, really micro-sized businesses, they maybe have one or two employees, they run a daycare center in their home, they are struggling to get through the process. And so we want to make sure that the relief is adequate in amount, but also is designed in such a way that, that every small business owner because we recognize that those very smallest businesses make a huge economic contribution to this country. Uh, I want to talk to you about some of the holes of uh, people who are not who have not been helped. Congress has passed three different pieces of legislation. The president signed them about that uh, designed to help folks. Um, one group is undocumented immigrants. Um, we did a story a few weeks ago that uh, showed that the you know there's uh, at, at SFO the, the airport here in San Francisco we. Uh, the, you know, there are millions and millions of dollars went to the airlines that work there, that work out of there. But there are 4,000 non-citizens that would get nothing there. This week, Governor Newsom, as you know, uh, uh, and with some uh, private-public partnership where uh, 150,000 undocumented adults would get a one-time cash payment of 500 bucks. Is the, is the, five, is the federal government going to be able to do anything for undocumented folks? Or is that going to be left up to the states and the private sector? Uh, you know, given given the political uh, differences over philosophical differences over helping undocumented folks. So do you, where do you see the federal government's role there? Immigration is probably the issue where I feel there is the strongest um, partisan divide, not only between Democrats and Republicans, but really between the White House and Congress as a whole. And so it's going to be very difficult, I think, to get the president to sign on to any legislative package that provides help for undocumented workers. One of the things that a lot of us are looking at is the fact that many undocumented people pay taxes. They have an employee identification number, an mm -hmm, I-10. Mm -hmm. And so for those who are paying into the tax system and continue, many of whom are, are working in construction or working in essential industries right now, transit or other things, they're continuing to pay taxes. I don't think it's fair to leave them out. Um, I think mm -hmm. that's a little different than trying to think about how do we broadly help um, every single person who's living in this country during a public health emergency. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I do think there's, you know, one of the possibilities is that we look at those with ITENs who are undocumented, who are paying into the system and trying to get them their proportionate share of resources. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that the governor is trying to do what he can. I, I think the important thing here, and I'll tell you, 
immigration is the issue that divides my constituents the most deeply. I get a lot of letters from people who think the federal government should be doing more um, to help people who are seeking asylum or coming to this country or living this country without documentation. And I get a lot of letters supporting building the wall. It's a very divisive issue right. in Orange County. And so I think that div that division that we see as we hear people, you know, I get so many people who say to me, you know, it's terrible that, that Congress is so divided. It's terrible that Washington can't agree. I often remind them that we don't have agreement in our own communities about a lot of these issues. And so what we see in Washington, to some degree, reflects the divide among the American people about how to proceed with this. It, it really is sort of democracy in action that we have this disagreement that's producing inaction, as hard as that is for many families to, to deal with right now. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Congresswoman Katie Porter after a short break. And stay tuned because this is where she talks about her disagreement with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And now, here's more of my conversation with Congresswoman Katie Porter. Let's talk about voting remotely. You have been one of the leading advocates in Congress to allow members of Congress to vote remotely, uh, work from home, essentially, like the, you know, the, <laughs> the rest of us are, are being told to do. Speaker Pelosi is not uh, been supportive of this. And uh, how? what's your level of frustration with this? And, and what can you do if the speaker's not behind you on this? Congress needs to be leading by example and not making itself an exception. And frankly, there's a long, rather ugly history of, of Congress treating itself as an exception um, to OSHA regulations, to how it deals with sexual harassment, to the treatment of interns. And I think one of the things I've really tried to do in my time in Congress in hearings is call out hypocrisy, call out CEOs or Trump administration officials when they're they're saying one thing to, the, to me and the committee and to the American people, but then behind the scenes they're doing another. And I think Congress needs to be careful about this. We are asking businesses, school districts, teachers, transit workers, um, so many people, churches, to adopt remote procedures, to social distance, to do it differently, to think outside of the box, to be creative, to be resourceful. And I am so incredibly proud of how my community is responding to those challenges. Yet we hear from congressional leadership on both sides of the aisle, well, tradition is the most important thing, um, and we like to we like the personal touch. Well, I mean, my kids like the per you know my daughter likes the personal touch that her, of her seeing her second grade teacher every day, but that's just not safe right now. And so, I I think it's important that we are an example of how to practice good public health measures. And the second thing I'll say is. This is not the first time Congress has been disrupted. 9-11 um, was certainly a big challenge. The fact that Congress was in session then um, presented its own set of challenges. But we have to, again, as we put onto others to create continuity of operations procedures, we too in Congress must have those kinds of procedures. So before I left Washington um, on March 13th, 14th, there in the middle of the night um, between Friday and Saturday, I gave Speaker Pelosi a letter um, and had over 45 signatures, bipartisan, of people asking for a rule change to permit remote voting if it became necessary. And that has not moved forward at this time. And there's a lot of excuses about technology and the lack of some members' apparent familiarity or comfort with technology. And I can attest to you, there's a, the most common sentiment expressed on these 
congressional caucus calls is, Joe, I think you need to unmute yourself, right? <laughs> so, you know, it, that's right there. That's number one, followed by number two, where are the tests? Number three, where is the PPE, right? Number four, where are the stimulus payments? But none of them have made, as pressing as those questions are, none of them have managed to knock off, I think you need to unmute yourself or mute yourself as the number <laughs> one thing that we discuss on these calls. But what I would say it's to still you number is, one. it's still number one. What I would say to you, though, is that technological familiarity, and I recognize that some of my colleagues are different ages. The average age, of course, is, sure, uh, you know, Sure, but they, they, everybody has a, a staffer who's tech savvy. Well, I mean, but our to, staffers to are not extent. with us right now. I mean, to be clear, yeah. I'm alone. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, I'm yeah. here with three children. I'm actually taping this from my minivan um, because my kids kept <laughs> making background noise. So I went and I'm sitting in my car in my driveway to get a clear recording. I for thought her. I heard an outdoor se- segment there as you yeah, were moving outside. Yeah, there was a little outdoor segment as I went through my garage to get in <laughs> okay. my minivan. But Congress, technological competence isn't a fixed thing. So if if people don't have it, we can train people. And, and that's really what we're asking teachers to do, for example, right now. We're asking um, people who work in retail who are not experts in, in sanitation and not experts in sanitizing and, and uh, those kinds of procedures to all pick up new skills, to all learn, and to all do their part in the public health crisis. So if members are not technologically savvy or they don't have the right equipment, those are solvable problems. What isn't a solvable problem, what we're seeing this tragically across the country, is if people get COVID-19, some you know percentage of them will struggle and some percentage of them will die. And so that's, that's the fixed thing that we ought to be working around. We can teach people to be technologically better. We can build technologically um, s- systems that are secure and that are stable. What we can't do is... You know, we're just limited right now in the science of being able to help people who do get sick. Um, I want to talk uh, politics with you very quickly. Um, uh, of course, you've long been very close to Senator Elizabeth Warren, who was your uh, uh, professor at Harvard Law School, um, and you endorsed her. And last week, you endorsed, I believe it was last week, you endorsed uh, Joe Biden. But, you know, there's there's a lot of concerns. I've talking to a lot of Democrats, very concerned about the enthusiasm level for uh, uh, the vice president, former vice president. Uh, 24% in a recent ABC poll said they, only 24% said they were very enthusiastic about Biden. And that's about half as many as said the uh, Republicans said they were very enthusiastic about the president. Didn't do well in the primaries with Latino voters and young voters. What what does Biden need to do to bump up his enthusiasm uh, uh, and, and their support among uh, Latino voters, young voters. You're you're uh, in touch. You're you're a, a, a darling of the progressive community. What 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 is your what do you think? I want to see the Biden campaign continue to try to find ways to engage younger voters, um, and continue to try to to press them um, to get inv- engaged. I think this coronavirus has been difficult, even though President, uh, sorry, Vice President Biden put out an excellent um, response to coronavirus. Um, it's still been a need to, uh, there's still been a need to him for him to figure out how to reach out. So he's launched a podcast. I think he needs to find, you know, his social media following is small. He needs to increase that. But I want to pick up on something you said about President Trump, because I think this is the most important thing for people to recognize going into this election. People who support the president nationally, people who support the president today are not a persuadable universe. If somebody gets up today in 2020 
and puts on a Make America Great Again hat, you're not going to swing that person to to vote for Joe Biden, no matter who he picks as vice president. And frankly, I don't think it would have mattered who was the nominee. President's support among the Republican Party is actually very, very high. They are not, most Republicans are not unhappy with the president. Now, there are people who have left the Republican Party. We're seeing no party preference voters go up. But the vast majority of Republicans in this country like the president. And so the question is, what are we going to do to reach out to no party preference voters, less frequent voters and Democrats to get them to understand that they must vote? And I think a lot of this election is going to come down to a referendum of the American people on President Trump rather than necessarily a popularity contest about about the Democratic nominee, about Joe Biden. So you're saying reach out to voters who are maybe uh, the, the voters who might be less inclined to vote or that that's the universe to stop trying to win over, you know, uh, former Trump voters in the Midwest. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, we did this in our district in the 45th district when I campaigned in 2018. We're going to do it again. Um in 2020, which is work really, really hard to engage less frequent voters. Part of what I would advise um, Joe Biden is to make sure he has the best person at engaging not just college students, but also people under 40. So one of the things that I didn't realize, I'm 45, and I'm telling you right now, I am not young. I do not feel young. I, you know, I, I just, I don't have the body of a young person. Like, I'm tired by 830. I am considered a young voter at age 46. I mean, I'm right there on the cusp. So when people say there's not enough enthusiasm among for among Joe Biden, among, quote, younger, quote, voters, when you start looking at the data by younger, they mean like under 50. So it's a huge swath of people that I think need to be engaged. And I, I think that one of the tr- problems is is that the best way to engage that group of people is face-to-face contact, um, is in-person yeah. events. So I think that while there's lots of opportunity for Joe Biden, and I look forward to helping and to be part of this as much as I can to help him ramp up his social media appearance, um, to get engaged, to do more media appearances that young people watch, um, you know, late night TV, things like that, different kinds of programming. It's also a challenge in this pandemic to reach those less frequent voters um, because they're yeah. they're they're not following politics. They're not reading that section of the newspaper. They're they they get up to get a you know a glass of water when when that part of the you know evening news comes on. So this pandemic <laughs> is going to be a challenge to figure out how to reach out to those people. But the time is now um, for Joe Biden to be staffing his campaign that way and showing us what he can do that way. And I I personally think that Joe Biden has real potential to connect with younger people, um, but but mm-hmm. it's going to take real effort to do so. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to ask you something as sort of a longtime uh, woman advocate. Um, you know, Tara Reid, this former aide to Joe Biden, said that uh, Biden sexually assaulted her when she worked with her in the when he was a senator back in 1993. Biden has uh, not yet personally addressed this, but his campaign has denied it. You've long been an advocate for women. What are, what are your feelings about this allegation, and what what how should it be what should be done about it? How should it be looked into? I would like the president, vice president. Um, I would like Vice President Biden to to address it, um, to to talk about what the allegations are, and to explain why they're inaccurate. I think that's a duty upon everybody 
to take allegations um, and accusations seriously and to show respect for the person making them. This is a challenging situation. This was 1993. Is that correct? So yes. to put that in perspective, we just talked about how I'm not younger. I'm 46. Um, this mm -hmm. happened when I was 19 years old. Mm. I was a freshman in college. So the supposed this, I shouldn't say this happened. These allegations stem back allegations, to that, yes, that yes. era. I have, um, and so that's just going to make this a challenge. It doesn't mean we shouldn't take it seriously and we shouldn't listen um, and we shouldn't ask the vice president to step up and give us answers. But I, I do think the fact that it's more than two decades old is both reflects potentially the challenges of speaking up about these kinds of uh, situations, but it also is going to make it difficult to really get to the bottom of what happened. And so, mm. um, you know, I think this is going to come down to the vice president speaking in an authentic and credible way and taking and showing respect for Miss um, Reed and then addressing it and hopefully in a way that we can then move forward with the campaign. And um, I wanted to ask you also Facebook, uh, you've been a longtime critic of them today. They said that, uh, I don't know if you saw this, but they said that <clears throat> they're going to try and uh, push back on misinformation that's out there. And they said that users who have liked, commented, or reacted to coronavirus information that's been flagged as, quote, harmful by Facebook will now be redirected to a website that's debunking uh, uh, COVID-19 myths uh, from the uh, World Health Organization. Is that enough? And what are your concerns about the, about that? It's certainly a welcome development from Facebook, and I um, don't have personal like immediate access to my Facebook account. Um, I sort of you know I I help write the post, but I sort of lost control of it. Um, I do have direct access to Twitter though, and because um, I post a lot of my own tweets, and I have seen from the beginning of this, you know, uh, banners across the top of Twitter saying, you know, need COVID-19 information, like, and, and redirecting people to the CDC website. So I certainly think this is a welcome development. It's a far cry from what we heard from Mr. Zuckerberg and the Oversight Committee a few months ago, which was basically, you know, back to the same, you know, uh, we're, I'm responsible and yet we're not responsible, right, at the same mm -hmm. time. And so I think this is a welcome development. I think there are a lot of ways that technology platforms and companies can use technology um, to address some of the problems that inevitably seem to arise from these platforms. So I, I'm glad to see them taking a step in that direction, and I'm going to be looking forward to hearing from people how it's working. And one final question before I let you go, and again, thank you, Congresswoman, so much for your time. Um, who should, who should uh, Biden pick for vice president? Do you have a favorite there? I know you were. You were. Um, yeah, Biden, I saw you were on a short list recently, but you you said no, yeah, that's, Joe, that's not Joe your Biden thing. Joe absolutely should pick. He should absolutely pick a woman. Um, not only yeah, because so I said that he's picking a woman. Yeah, not only because he said it, but I want to be. I want to suggest something else about this, because he should pick a woman because all of the research and I think the lived experience of what we've seen is that women do lead differently than men. Um, I think they think about power in a little bit different way. I think they use it more collaboratively. You could look at the research on corporate governance. Boards of directors of corporations that have women on them take on less risk and are more profitable. Mm -hmm. So it's win-win, and I think there's some of that same evidence that's coming out of women's leadership in other areas, including in, in things like Congress. I cannot imagine serving in Congress 
without all of my amazing female colleagues who I really feel like are the leaders of this freshman class. So I'm very excited he's going to pick a woman. I have no opinion uh, beyond that other than, you know, I launched my campaign with the endorsement of, of Senator Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris. Both of those women are amazing leaders. I would not be in Congress without their belief mm-hmm. in me. Um, and so obviously those are my top two picks are um, Senator Harris and Senator Warren. So, and, Okay. And uh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to go get on a conference call and make sure that I mute myself. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so, so, I used so much to for say being people. I hope to, I hope to see you soon, but now I say, may you mute and unmute successfully. <laughs> I thank you so much. Those are words to live by. I think at this time, they really are. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much. I'd like to thank you all for listening, and I hope that you and your family stay healthy. I'd like to thank Congresswoman Katie Porter for joining us here today. From her minivan, I'd like to thank the King, King Kaufman, for producing today's episode. And remember, whether you know how to mute yourself on Zoom or not, it's all political. It's All Political is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Our executive editor is Audrey Cooper. Our theme music, our wonderful theme music that I love, it gets me jazzed up, is Cattle Call, written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Croson. Support It's All Political and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for a Chronicle membership. It's very easy. You just go to sfchronicle.com slash pod.